I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. With the first cold snap hitting the UK this past week, it's really starting to feel like winter. And that means gardens are entering their bare bones era. It's a time of structural beauty, of evergreen supremacy, of frosty seed heads, and of low but magical light. Wintertime gardening can feel like what author Naomi Slade calls the dark arts. She writes in RHS The Winter Garden, it's a place that exists on the edge of comprehension, a mysterious and gloomy realm of empty space and quiet enchantments. So today, we'll be heading to Bristol to join Naomi to hear about designing a winter garden and enjoying all the mystery and enchantment it has to offer. Later, we'll be focusing in on winter veg with garden manager and grow your own aficionado, Sheila Das. And finally, we'll be discussing how to build a show-stopping floral arrangement with what's available to pick right now. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Author Naomi Slade has lived in Bristol for the vast majority of her life, and so the many gardens and parks there have become an extension of her own backyard. You know, like there are trees that I remember being planted, you know, 40 years ago, or that my children then climbed. There's this gorgeous cedar here, and we had my sister's 35th birthday picnic underneath it in July, because it was boiling hot pretty much everywhere else. So it's one of those places which, for me, it's kind of part of my DNA. It really is where I grew up. Naomi took us around the University of Bristol's Royal Fort Gardens earlier this month. She grew up around the corner and she's witnessed it grow, evolve and expand over the past decades. Naomi was keen to take us there to find inspiration for designing a garden that withstands the intense scrutiny of winter bareness. I have always loved a winter garden. I find that it has a quiet quality. The sort of the bells and the whistles aren't there to such a degree necessarily. I like the peace, I love the muted colours. I like the fact that you can see beneath the skin of a landscape. You can see how a garden truly is because a garden really shows its fundamental good qualities or lack of good qualities in the depths of winter because you can't really hide from that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we're currently standing between the physics building of University of Bristol and the mansion of the Royal Fort. So on the one side, there's quite a newly designed landscape. And on the other side, there's the historic Repton landscape. And they have garden interest in winter and all year round in quite different sorts of ways. And you can hear Great George. Again, that is such a fundamental um, sound of my childhood. You know, you can tell wherever you are in Bristol, most places, because uh, you can hear Great George chiming. This was re-landscaped a little while ago to create a formal garden, a space in which people can sit, enjoy themselves, enjoy the greenery, when they rebuilt various elements of the university around here. And it's very clearly been designed to be good all year round. So you've got nice structure from clipped evergreens, there's box, there's fragrant flowers, there's hellebores, there's roses that are still going over at this time of year. But you've got that repetition, so you've got that framing of walls and hedges and sort of billowing mounds of greenery. And around that you've got repeated verticals, so there's a whole line of ginkgo, for example. And then there's repeated aces as well. So you've got that sense of journey, that visual journey, that sense of height, which is really, really important in all gardens, but winter gardens particularly, to counter the prospect of the garden going flat. You've got the autumn leaves going on, which are heading on into winter. So, so this is a garden which is kind of going to hold its own for months to come, and there'll be more interest coming as the season wears on, but it's got a really good structure to it. Know, repetitions, heights, verticals, colourful things, all sort of stitched in with other plants that are going to rise and fall and have elements of interest. This brings me rather seamlessly on to what I would like to talk about today, which is winter garden design and how to get the best out of the garden in winter. When it comes to garden design, I always say that you should start off by thinking how a garden looks in winter, because that's the bones, that's the structure, that's the basis upon which all other seasons hang. In summer, there's screens of foliage, there's roses, there's fragrance, there's you know, all the bells and whistles. And you, I mean, you can't see an awful lot of the garden in summer because it's covered in leaves. But in winter, when all the leaves have gone, when all the perennials have gone brown, perhaps collapsed, depending on what you've chosen, you you can really, really see the bones of what's there and that's what you're left looking at for the rest of the season. So it really does make sense to start off by building in the interest, creating that structure, creating that greenery, thinking about form and vistas and things like that, and then building in other elements for other seasons on top. The best place to start when designing a garden is to start from where you are. You might have a complete blank canvas, in which case you look at the aspect, you look at the soil, you look at the vista. Or you may have inherited an existing garden or your, your previous iteration of your own garden and want to improve it for winter. So you have to think about the assets, how much light it gets, because light's really important in winter. Um, some things will do perfectly well in shade, some things like light all year round, and some things are literally adapted to uh, deal with the fact that there isn't the canopy above, so they can get their growth spurt in, things like small bulbs, snowdrops particularly, will get their growth in before the leaves come. 
So capitalising on those things is always important. A good winter garden is heavy on shrubs and on trees. So thinking about how those forms work. I mean, even in a small garden, something like aces, uh, snake bark maples, you get nice colour of stems, you get a nice texture. There's many seasons of foliage interest. Using things like willow and cornus for their bright stems, you get that real hit of colour and they can be kept nice and compact because they'll take really hard pruning, pollarding or coppicing. Then there are plants that you don't necessarily think about. I mean, this might sound controversial, but I love a magnolia in winter. A large magnolia with its wonderful snaking branches. It has real impact. It's not all about the sort of ta-da of the spring flowers. It has structure. You can underplant it. You can use it as a focal point and it has these fantastic grey fuzzy buds that start fattening up in early spring as well. Another plant which is increasingly popular is really having a moment, the hydrangeas, which they have quite a nice structure actually when they don't have any leaves on and, and they do very often hang on to their leaves well into winter. I mean in a really sheltered spot they can be semi-evergreen. But, but the flower heads, because they're made up of bracts rather than flowers, they're more robust and they don't need to collapse because they've got no reproductive function. So they dry on the plant. They start off by antiquing into the winter, developing sort of teal and dark pink and red colours before they become a sort of beautiful pale taupe or fawn colour. And those can add interest, sort of backlit or covered in frost. It's, it's a plant with real longevity. One of the best ways to introduce um, drama in the garden is to go really large on something. So if you've got coloured stems, put them en masse. Don't get one packet of, of, of small bulbs, of scylla or of little daffodils. If you've got space for a thousand, plant a thousand. If you've got space for 10,000, plant 10,000. Because that's where you'll get your impact from. And with small bulbs, if you create a massive swathe, make sure it's backlit by the sun from the place where you're viewing it from, because that'll give a real, just a glorious stained glass effect, absolutely amazing. If you're redesigning or sort of giving your garden a winter upgrade, then think about how you might want to use it also. So is there somewhere where you can go and sit down and have a cup of tea? you know, on a slightly miserly day, which is reasonably warm. Are you standing in the rain? Well, perhaps some shelter's a good idea. Does it get dark really early? Well, may may maybe you need some lights, or maybe you need to do some pruning, let a little bit more light in. So think about the barriers to using the garden, as well as things that you can add, maybe things you can take away, or things that you can, you can just move sometimes, and it can make all the difference to how the space is used. What, what can the garden do for you as well as what can you do for the garden? Because limiting our connection to the outdoors just to the summer months doesn't seem very clever, doesn't seem very wise always. You know, it's good for your mental health, it's good for your physical health, and that's, that, that's with us always. Thanks there to Naomi Slade. You can find a link to her most recent book, RHS The Winter Garden in our show notes.
Naomi shows us all the possibilities of winter, a period that we tend to take for granted and we just want to stay inside and forget about it until spring comes. But what Naomi has done here in this fantastic book is to show all the possibilities of winter, whether it's working in your own garden, garden visiting, all the aspects of gardening that you can work on to make the use of those three months that we'd otherwise fritter away sitting indoors waiting for spring. This is a fantastic book and I'm going to read it over and over. Over the years, the way we've approached this time of year has shifted. It used to be standard to put the garden to bed in late autumn and then wait until clear signs of spring before dusting off the shovel and hoe to return to work. But in 2023, that seems silly. There are many advantages and opportunities when it comes to year-round growing, and we're often just scratching the surface. At RHS Garden Wisley, there's been a huge effort to extend and capitalise on a longer growing season for edibles. In fact, some of my colleagues are even writing a book about it for 2024. Gareth Richards visited garden manager and allotment here, Sheila Das, at Wisley to learn more. Sheila, welcome back. Now, I hear you're in the middle of writing a book for the RHS about growing your own veg all year round. What do you see are the benefits of growing fruit and veg all year round? Yeah, it's really, really exciting, Gareth, because again, I think it's, it's like so many things we're discovering now. There's a real liberation happening with food and learning more about how you can grow your own and the seasonality of food, it, it feels like it offers so many more opportunities. So in a scenario, say, I think, believe it happened fairly recently where we were panicking during one winter of not having any tomatoes and peppers and lettuces, you know, it's not a panic that I was experiencing as a vegetable grower because I just, I'm quite happy not to eat those things in the winter. Mm. So for me, it's about thinking about what can I grow in the winter? Now, there are few periods in the year where you get what people call the hungry gap. So actually that's sort of late winter. Yeah. Um, and they can be a bit of a challenge. But certainly for me, growing seasonally really helps to support the idea that our gardens... And that could be a balcony or a patio or a windowsill or a garden or an allotment could be a living larder effectively. And it's something we're really exploring a lot here in the garden at Wisley, trying to grow all year round seasonal vegetables so that we've got access to pick and eat, pick and eat, pick and eat. And that's fantastic for our health as well, isn't it? Because there's more and more studies coming out saying that we should eat a variety of fruit and veg. And also the freshness is really important as well. So if you're growing your own, you can have this wide variety of edible things, but you can also pick them and eat them at the optimum freshness. Absolutely. And what that does to all the sugars and carbohydrates that are in the plant, you're getting the best of the plant, really, I think. And so what I love about growing all year round, particularly with winter veg, actually, is, you know, I am a big I'm a big brassica fan. I love cabbages. I've always been slightly bewitched by growing cabbages. But, you know, you've got white cabbages, green cabbages, red cabbages. And I was delighted to hear a nutritionist talking and saying that actually even those variations in variety of crop um, can offer something different and yeah. diverse to your gut microbiome. So I thought, great, it just means I can grow more cabbages. Grow more. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. So apart from cabbages, <laughs> what are your go-to winter veg? Yeah, so we've got some real staples, I think, of the winter veg garden in this country, in, in mm. the UK, in our climate as it has been. And those have been things like chard can sit very well 
in, in the right yeah. climate over winter so you can pick and eat from that. Coming back to, to the brassicas, some kales. So the black Tuscan kale, the cavolo, which people oh, yeah. is really cavolo popular. Nero. Yeah. Oh yeah, so tasty. Yeah, really popular with people. But also there's loads of other really hardy kales. Mm. I'm and you can get perennial kales as well. Yeah. So you can have those year to year to year to year. I've got a slight allotment success, but also a slight fail in that I took a load of perennial kale cuttings and I grew mm. them in my fruit cage. And I haven't quite kept up with picking them. And now they've, the entire fruit cage is just full of this yeah. perennial. It's literally <laughs> bursting. It's like this ship of perennial <laughs> kale that sailed into the middle of the allotment. So I'm gonna, I think I'm going to have a kale-filled winter. Oh, fabulous. So there's, there's so many things that you can do with kales. But let's, it's, this isn't uh, kale radio. I won't keep going on about <laughs> kale. But so other than kale, so, you know, there's other things that sit well in the ground. So if you grow parsnips, for example, you can harvest those all winter. You're not everybody's favourites, but your, your sprouts are obviously going to be good. And I'm, I'm still on this brassica tip. But we're experimenting in our world food garden with, you know, we've been learning a lot about what other crops are available in other cultures and cuisines. Mm. So a lot of the Chinese greens are really good for growing over winter and suit our mm. climate. So various pak choys, they're really helpful, but also things like winter spinach. And we're learning more and more and more. Ooh, winter spinach, I've not heard of that. Yeah, it's a type of spinach that will stand over the winter and actually growing spinach in the summer, we're finding more and more of a challenge because yeah. it gets so hot yeah. and it often just goes straight to, to flower. Mm. The only time I grow spinach is I sow it in sort of September, October time in yeah. the greenhouse and yeah. crops in February, sometimes yeah. even January if I get it in early enough, January, February and then March and then it flowers, but I get months of just lovely, lovely leaves. But yeah, yeah. when I try growing it over the summer, it just, it just flowers instantly and doesn't yeah. really do much. So what would you say to people who kind of want to put the veg patch to bed once the last tomatoes have been picked and say, oh, it's not really worth it, it's too cold? Yeah, it's uh, kind of missing a whole range of different crops, actually, mm. Gareth, isn't it? I mean, I, I've really enjoyed experimenting with the stuff I've grown over the winter. I grew something last year, which is a, a Chinese funny knobbly stemmed brassica, actually, called Wa Wa Ga Choi. And that was really tasty and it was something I'd not tried before. So I think there are opportunities of trying new things. And that obviously comes back to helping with the diversity mm. of our diets. But really important as well is just keeping growing in ground over the winter protects the soil. So um, thinking about, yes, we can mulch our beds with bulky compost, but potentially we could just grow plants yeah. in them and keep that plant growth, keeping the soil healthy, providing that cover. But hey, then we've also got something to eat. Win -win. It feels like a win-win. It's also about kind of having fresh produce. I think as we've already mm. said that, being able to just pick something and eat it. Growth slows over the winter, mm. so we're not going to pretend we're going to get the same kinds no. of harvest as we do in the no. summer. So it always, for me, it does come in tandem a little bit with saving some of the things that I've grown in the summer. So things like my potatoes that I grew in the summer or my squashes are there as my winter starchy mm. carbohydrates, which is all good. I might have kept some beetroot. I might have even frozen those. I certainly put those in the yeah. fridge. And, then, and imagine that, a plate with beetroot, squash, kales, other winter veg, you know, yeah. your purple broccoli. We talk about eating the rainbow. So people worry, you know, if I can't have tomatoes and peppers in the winter, where's my rainbow? But actually with a combination of growing some of those things in the summer, plus what you can top up with and grow in the winter. Yeah. And there are winter lettuces and other winter salads mm. too. So it feels like it's possibly more achievable than people might think. And part of that problem comes from only assuming that 
what's available as fruit and veg is what we see in the shops. Yes, yeah. And well, when as we soon as you start growing yeah. and sowing your own, you realise there's a whole different calendar. Absolutely. We ha to we us. did a display at Wisley. We have 48 varieties of squashes in that display. I mean, and that's the variety that you can have yeah. if you're. Well, yeah, you've yeah, quite be a lucky. big garden, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll be lucky to find three in a supermarket, yeah. wouldn't you? So yeah. yeah, and it just changes your relationship with food. Mm. I think you get excited about eating, and we've got so used to just having the same old things all year round. But now I really look forward to all those seasons. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Gareth. Vegetable growers nowadays tend to neglect their winter plot. They grow lots of lovely summer things, you know, salads, tomatoes, sweet corn, that all taste wonderful fresh off the plant. But they tend to leave the garden unused in winter. That's a pity. There's plenty of things to grow, and one of the things that Sheila mentioned was cabbages. I'm not sure when red cabbage became the go-to winter vegetable, but for the last 10 years it certainly has. And then chard. Chard is something that doesn't travel well, so you can grow chard in the back garden and it'll be superior to the supermarket material. Kales have become very popular and they're especially valuable last year because they shrugged off the severe frost that we had. And another thing that people like to grow that Sheila mentioned is Chinese greens. They're great for stir fries and salads. I grow a lot of these and I will say they do take up a lot of space so it's a good thing for an allotment it's harder to fit in most gardens. The other things I like to grow for winter and particularly for Christmas are root vegetables so I grow a lot of beetroot, celeriac, swedes and carrots and of course parsnips and one of the things to note about the frosty weather that's setting in now is that it actually makes vegetables taste nicer when plants are afflicted by cold, they make antifreeze, and this antifreeze is usually kinds of sugars. So when the parsnip gets cold, it produces sugars to protect itself from freezing, and these sugars are what makes the parsnip sweet. So at this time of year, in November and early December, vegetables are at their very best. Their flavour and texture is great, and they haven't started to weather and lose quality as they do as winter goes on. So at this time of year, really enjoying the winter vegetables. To close this episode, we wanted to bring some winter charm indoors. You might consider cut flowers and floral arrangements to be a thing for the warmer months. But aside from the obvious Christmas wreaths, there are actually a whole host of fabulous and architectural things you can use from the garden to create stunning indoor displays at this time of year too. In fact, to demonstrate the possibility of winter florals, the Garden Museum in South London is hosting its first ever Winter Flowers Week in early December. Ahead of the event, we caught up with two of the floral designers, Hazel Gardner and Shane Connolly, to hear about their inspiration for winter designs. My style of floristry is very much in a similar vein to Shane. I think we're very much passionate about seasonality. Yeah, and using yeah, and using British flowers. And I think in times in in terms of style, it's wild, it's natural, it's using the unexpected, the unloved, the underappreciated. Obviously, we use uh, sustainable floristry techniques, uh, and it really is about setting a scene for me. I don't really just look at flowers; I look at anything natural, just any a, anything you know, a little bit 
of um, moss could be just the most perfect thing. Yeah. So it really is about setting a, a really natural scene, something that tells a story, and it just, just goes beyond a flower and a vase. That isn't what we do. It is very much the whole scene and the narrative. I think you've taken the words out of my mouth. It's absolutely that. And it's trying to create a memory rather than an impression so that you don't want people to be impressed by the amount of money that somebody must have spent for a party or a wedding. You want them to think, wow, that was, that was just such an amazing event. The flowers are part of it. The decor is part of it, but it's not the sort of ostentatious, uh, look what I can afford thing. I think that's really, and, so, and the unexpected flower is usually the thing that does that. Exactly. You know, the dandelion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, Winter Flowers is a very exciting baby of British Flowers Week. For about 12 years, British Flowers Week has been a celebration of British flowers, British growers. And it's in the summer, surprise, surprise, the time when flowers are best. And the Garden Museum became its home about five years ago, I think 2017, 2018. And we've talked about it in the Garden Museum for a while about having a winter equivalent because most people say it's really hard to do anything nice in the winter with flowers and British flowers don't exist. And they're missing out on British nature in the winter. And it will not only show how to do an installation if you're a florist, you, you know, not using any foam or anything like that, but also just expanding people's knowledge about the ingredients that are outside. I love that, how you said it's kind of winter nature. Winter nature. You know, it, there are so many things. Like, I love foliage at this time of yeah. year. There are so many things you can do. Bracken, obsessed, yeah. you know. It's <laughs> and, true. and it's all of these things. So. And, and that awful expression, managing expectations. I think Hazel and I work with people, and sometimes that is what I would say 75% of the event is it's managing their expectations because they like peonies and the event is in November, that sort of thing, and you can't do it. Or you can't do it sustainably, and she and I wouldn't do it. So it's showing people what we could do. If you gave, if you trusted us and gave us free reign, this is what could happen. Obviously, at home, you're not going to be creating one of Hazel and my installation scale things but hopefully all five designers will give you something to take home inspirationally with you for me at home in the winter one of the first gardening books i ever read was the education of a gardener russell page he never owned a garden of his own and he talks at the end of the book about what his dream garden would be for me i would have winter flowering shrubs i wouldn't want summer things because summer things you can walk along any street in any town and see roses and see this and see that i would have Winter sweet, Chimenanthus praecox. I would have Viburnum bodentense. I would have the flowering winter honeysuckles. To me, they are the greatest gifts of nature. And a sprig of those in a room transforms the room in the winter, you know, forget scented candles. And that's what I hope people take home, that it doesn't have to be a big bowl of flowers. It could be a bowl of pomegranates that you're going to use to make something for Christmas to eat. It could be something that's edible, vegetables, with just a sprig of an incredibly beautiful thing. Or a stem of mistletoe, you know, the, the light, candlelight on mistletoe berries. That to me is more magical than 400,000 roses. Yeah, I have to completely agree. And really, it is a love letter, to, especially what we're doing, kind of a love letter to everything that goes in, into the season, what can be dried, you know, branches, twigs, bracken, honesty, you know, lunaria, one of the most beautiful things. It is beautiful. That, that is so perfect yeah. for Christmas. Yeah. Even 
ivy that everyone walks past. It's a perfect table runner at Christmas and it's really accessible for people to go and get dried teasel, grasses, you know, grasses. I just adore and they get forgotten but this is the perfect time to use them it's really the time to be a painter yes and an artist and you know as Hazel says grasses with candlelight because they don't catch fire but grasses by candlelight the shadows go on the wall the shadows go on the table and that can create a more atmospheric dinner party for you and a few friends than any amount of summer flowers I mean they're beautiful as well I'm not I'm not knocking the summer yeah but we want people to see that nature goes on it does and our job is to bring nature in to the house, to the party, to the event, whatever the season. So this is showing, hopefully, that we can do it. Constance Spry, the great grandmother of all of our floristry, she always said, don't rule anything out. Yeah. And when she went to someone's house to do flowers, she liked. She said she liked to start at the compost heap yeah. and see what was you know, there that was looking interesting, because sometimes it's that leaf that's just turned and become slightly skeletonized and is is looking really interesting. I think interesting. Yeah. Rather than pretty. Exactly. Pretty happens anyway. Whatever yeah. we do, it's pretty. It's nature. It's going to be pretty. But interesting is is a much more achievable thing in the winter. It is. For me, it would be very much mixing maybe some kind of fresh magnolia, but maybe with dried magnolia, but then against, you know, limonian or status, and then with like the faded copper of bracken. But then there's things I've saved, such as like artichoke heads from the summer. So that's exactly what I would say under that bracket of interesting. And it's, it's really about merging all those things together to create depth and interest. Yeah. I'm thinking of the lemon peel clematis that ah. produces those beautiful, beautiful little fluff heads. Yes, yes. And they get, I mean, at the moment they're looking silky and another few weeks they look, they look like, well, your famous dandelion puffs. Yeah. They become they completely become, different. Yeah. And it's it's saying to yourself, what stage do I want to use those? Mm. And they're, they're just wonderful yes. and inspirational. Lovely. And I'm also using a lot of hydrangea limelight. So that's kind of like the cone head, not the mop head type. And their sepals are so, so delicate. Like I could just stare at one for an hour, for an hour. Um, but it's voluminous. If you do anything, buy one hydrangea in summer, dry it, and it will just, you know, it really fills a vase. Three or four of those in a vase will last you a really, really long time. And it also teaches you and your children if you've got children to appreciate nature in all its stages yeah you know that the tree isn't always covered in green leaves they go brown they fall off mm -hmm. and it's there's a beauty in each of those stages yeah that's how you get interested i think as children hazel and i were probably the same that's how you got interested you know it was foraging around in the garden finding something that you didn't know what it was even and that's you know it's 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 that gestation of ideas from what you see that is that makes it art really That was Hazel Gardner and Shane Connolly. Winter Flowers Week will run from the 7th to the 11th of December at the Garden Museum. Head to our show notes for details. Before we go, I just wanted to share a few tips on what you can get up to in the garden this week. It's very wet, so ideally stay off the plot, but if you have to walk on the garden, put down some planks. That'll spread the weight and stop damaging the soil by trampling. It's still time in the south to sow beans and plant garlic and shallots and, of course, plant the last of the bulbs. They will perform from December, but it's much better to get them in as early as possible. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.